Hey guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and and how do you get to make it and you know what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. everybody here it is it's monday night it's time for the podcast that time it's uh it's not 4 a.m this time though it's only uh 11 42 p.m i am living the hack my friends i am living it i am this is my commitment again to you my customer this is this is the hustle part of the hustle bus hustle is the hack framework um I, I uh, well, get my story straight here. All right, yeah. So that's the that's the theme song. There we go. That's the theme song. I do. I actually have a great theme song. I, I really. I got some great comments on it. Welcome to the cafe here today, the uh, sales cafe, and uh, we have a bunch of things on the agenda for today. Uh, the first thing is, it is Mother's Day, and I hope that you had an awesome time with your mom or called your mom up or relayed your expression of gratitude and excitement about being born into this world as the result of your mother and her biological need to have a baby. Um, whether you were planned or unplanned, you are an awesome creation. You are. And uh, your mom loves you. Whose mom doesn't love them? And you have to just thank your mom for all the awesomeness that she had you. You were born into this world to make a difference. And uh, so uh, welcome to the Hustle is the Hack podcast. Again, my name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus, a 35-year veteran in selling uh, technology, business development, uh, and uh, coaching salespeople and working with salespeople in business development all across the world. Uh, and uh, I want to pass on my vast wisdom to my friends out there, you, my wonderful audience. And so today, 
uh, we are going to attempt to do some of that. Share what is in the mind of Pierre Hulsebus. Share information that will help you. Uh, get your sales career hopefully kicked off or kind of starting. If you're in business development, you're going to find this to be a great, um, a great set of uh, a lot of basic rules of the road and kind of how to get off on the right foot in your sales career. If you're a seasoned veteran, hopefully you'll pick up some tips and insight into some of the current things that are happening out there and how to really position your product and service for uh, the next few years so you're ready to you know pounce on some market opportunities if you are a nonprofit and you think uh, you're having some struggles with connecting your values and messages out to your um, your prospective uh, business sponsorships and and uh, and using folks uh, that might be part of your um, uh, fundraising efforts uh, this podcast is for you this is for you. That's you are my talk target audience. If you are a managing complex sales and you're a million dollar sales leader, just turn off this radio uh, or this podcast right now because it's not for you. It's not for you. You're going to listen to this and you're going to go, Pierre, this is too simple. You've oversimplified this, but that's, but you're not my customer. So I'm sorry if I offend you uh, by oversimplifying this, but I really believe that there are basic kind of foundational things that people should know about as they begin this process. And don't forget those. And you can get all high and mighty and super fancy and all of that in your big fancy sales career 20 years into it. And because you're smart, you don't need my advice. You're doing great. Thanks. Good job. Uh, go, go read, a, go, go, uh, go do your own podcast and share your insights and wisdom and, and, uh, or come on my show and share some of your stuff. I'd appreciate it if you did. All right. So what's the first thing? What's the first thing? The first, I, I have to, I have to, I have to, uh, I have, uh, I have a little bit of a revelation, um, over the week and, uh, Yeah. It was a little scary when I started thinking about it because it's really a, it's one of these things that you start thinking about and you kind of go, this is scary, Pierre. What are you, why, why did you think about this? And so I, what is in the mind of Pierre? Top of mind right now. I say it hustles the hack. What are the challenges of hustling uh, to get ahead, to work at, you know, the time that I'm working at right now? is a lot of times hustling is uh, for a season. It is a good thing to do for a season because we all need balance in our lives. We all need to have some long-term, we actually have families. Now I'm in the position currently that I don't have children at home anymore. I don't have little kids in baseball games to go to anymore. So at my, my career stage right now, I don't have that. I don't have that pressure. It's just me and my lovely wife and, uh, here in the house, and and my daughter who's finishing up college, and and uh, I have a, college, a son in college also that is uh, is uh, visiting from time to time because he's uh, off on campus. So you know um, these are these are helpful things uh, when you're hustling. Uh, so I have some time to hustle right now, and uh, so that's great. But you know, hustling uh, like this is not a long term growth plan. <laughs> It's hard to scale your business when you're, you know, hustling. Now, I'll tell you this, if you are the sales director or, or owning a business or the the head of the business development at a nonprofit and you're a founder of a company, 
you will always have more passion than everybody else around you. You invented the thing. You are, you know, personalizing this. This is you. This is your business. And you're doing your darndest to get it out there and get the thing started or get the thing moving in a different direction. So, of course, you're more committed than everybody else. And you have to be weary of that. Um, kind of position that you can put your team in because you're expecting them to be as committed as you. And that's kind of hard sometimes, quite frankly, uh, to do because they're looking maybe you as an employer and not a founder. So they, of course, don't have the same cotton picking uh, motivation that you have. You're building a long-term business. They're working for a paycheck. And that's a very different uh different model. I've always looked at my job as a career. I own my career. I'm not an employee. I am. I own my career. And so I'm always working on improving that career. And that's uh, kind of the, the uh, model that I've worked on is you just trying to, and that's where the hustle idea comes is that, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want to be outworked in a deal. I don't want to be outworked in a, in a business opportunity. I won't, I don't want to be in that position where I feel like I could have done better or more uh, to win it. We'll talk a little about some of that today, uh, a little later on today. But, you know, the thing is what I'm really trying to, what are, what are you, get to the point, get to the point already, get to the point, Hustlemas. All right, here we go. So uh, here's the point. Uh, hustle is the hack. That's true. Um, that is a, a core, you know, key to success for a lot of folks. What is uh, what it is, though, you have to realize that that is not a, a growth strategy. That is not a growth strategy. You, it's hard to scale hustling. Because uh, you have to be able to leverage, you know, as you get your your thing going, you have to give this away. You have to give parts of your job away, parts of your hustle away. And uh, again, not everybody's going to have that commitment. So it's kind of hard sometimes to uh, to look at it as a sustainable system. It's not a sustainable system or it's, it's not a really a growth plan. Uh, you have to be able to work through others and leverage the work of others to get that. And that's a whole other topic. But Anyways, I say it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Hustle really, to me, means hard work. Just um, get out there and do the hard work and be super committed to it. So that that is sustainable, and that is uh, something that we can all get passionate about. Anyways, anyways, so I digress, but let me uh, progress with my digression uh, into uh, what the topic of our show today is. Uh, which is 7.4 rules of selling. What are the rules of selling? So, um, so for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, I'd like to kind of dive in to what these 7.4 things that you, um, as you go out there and do you uh, out in the in the field of whether you're doing again business development or account management, or you're trying to raise funds or start a company. These are the eight basic rules or 7.4 basic rules. I like the goofy way of looking at it, but uh, they're, you know, a list of some of the rules that can help you find success in this area. And uh, the first thing to uh, um, that, uh, that you're going to see, uh, number one, rule uh, number one, the rules of selling business development, rules of business development is fill the pipeline. That means every day when you get up, you have the first thing that you have to do in this whole thing of developing business is filling that pipeline. And what in the heck are we talking about? What is the pipeline? What is the pipeline? So this is sales terminology. Uh, many people experience a tremendous peak and valleys in their sales. 
uh, and business development efforts because they don't really consider um, uh, or con- uh, consistently prospect for new business. This is frequently occurs because they're super busy. Uh, we're, and we're busy doing some of the other stuff that's on the list. The other 6.3 things that are on this list, we're doing that stuff. And so the thing is to think, number one, every day when I get up, what am I going to do to fill my pipeline? And you can break a pipeline down. So what is a pipeline? Well, let's just think about this for a second. Um, on one end of the pipeline uh, is uh, right a, a perfect example. Over the weekend, a pipeline in the United States was turned off and uh so it was turned off because there was some uh, apparently some some cyber hacking that was happening and they were victims of some cyber uh hacking and so they had to turn some of their systems off which in fact turned down their pipeline uh what's on one end of the pipeline oil oil production and oil tanks is there as that uh oil is getting pumped out of the ground in texas and what's on the other end of that? Well, those are gas stations uh, on the other end of that over in the New York area. Um, it's um, pumping into gas tanks over there and oil tanks over there to be delivered to customers. And uh, so there is a process. It takes, it's a very long pipeline. It's, uh, it's uh, over a thousand miles long or about that from what I understood. And uh, it's quite, quite a long ways from one end to the other. And uh, so think about selling like this. I need to, out of the one end, the results of all of this effort that I'm going to put in is going to be a sale or a financial transaction that is a result of all my business development efforts. Now, that sale takes some time. People don't usually walk in the door unless I'm selling um, furniture. (laughs) They don't walk in the door. And um, and go, oh, I'll just take that. And you go, thank you very much. And you just take the, the order and you're done. Like for salespeople, retail salespeople, I used to work in retail sales. Um, it worked that way. Actually, people walked in the door and you talked for them to them for about 10 minutes. And uh, you helped them decide what computer worked out best for them. And they walked out the door with the computer. Uh, the majority of selling is not that way. Usually there is a process involved of, of talking to them on the phone, arranging appointments, having meetings with the, the, the prospects around different questions and challenges they have, whether that's engineering diagrams or they want to see your prospectus or what, whatever. So there's a sales dialogue you have to go through. You give them a proposal. They have to consider that proposal, compare it maybe to other competitors that you may have in the marketplace. They might come back and ask some questions. This out before, and then they go, this is, sounds great. Let's get it. And then they go, all right, now talk to my purchasing department. And the purchasing department says, we want a 4% discount. And you said, that's not what we agreed to with the other guy. And then you have to go to your legal department. There's a contract. There's all sorts of stuff that has to happen. It's confusing and complex. Uh, Anyways, depending on what type of selling you're doing, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. So that process takes a little while. So you have to consider that uh, time and effort as part of the pipeline. That once I get engaged with a customer in the call, there's there's a whole process that I have to go through. Give them a proposal. They may reject my proposal. <clears throat> so I'm going to use my million dollars. Let's say every month I need to make a million dollar sale. So 
what I have to think about is from the time that I talk to somebody, they, they're a lead in my system, the time that we identify a person of interest and we begin engaging them in a sales conversation, that lead to uh, um, conversion rate is important to know how many. So let's say every person that I talk to um, from a customer standpoint, once they walk in my door uh, into this meeting room or whatever, we're now going to track that uh, opportunity in the system. And every quote that I give to somebody, well, that it takes uh, four quotes for me to turn into one sale. So that means I have to have four uh, four opportunities for every um, every sale that I get. So to get that million dollars, that means I have to have four million dollars worth of opportunities for every month that I'm working. Say it takes one month for my sale to go through. From there, I also have to back that up. How many leads in terms of people that express some interest is there uh, before I go from a lead to an opportunity in the system that I can keep track of and start sending a proposal out. Well, let's say maybe there's 10. There's 10 leads. For every 10 leads I get, I get to turn that into an actual proposal to a customer. So to get my one sale, I need four opportunities. Each one of those needs 10 leads. So that means I need 40 leads to get in my pipeline just to make my one sale. So, and then you keep backing that up. In order for me to get the name of that person and have them express interest, how many kind of impressions do they need off the website? And how much uh, information do they need to get from um, social media in terms of impressions to direct them to the website, to drop their name, to say, contact me? Um, so maybe let's say that's a thousand a thousand impressions out there before I get one, um, one, uh, one lead. So that means not only do I need to have my um, my one opportunity that I'm going to close, one deal, my four uh, proposals that I need to have, so my four opportunities that I need to track and, and deliver, and my forty different um, leads that I need to process. And the now 40 times 100, right? 4,000 impressions that I need to have out in my social media feeds and on my website in order to get one. So I have to, I have to go find 4,000 different people out in the universe of prospective customers and direct them and engage with them somewhere out in the social media <laughs> website world, search engines, to get them directed all the way so they make it all the way. So that's a what we refer to as a sales funnel or a pipeline, a pipeline report. How many do we have in each one of those stages? And so every day, my job is going to be to fill that pipeline, to make sure all those numbers, if that's my fictional customer, my, my territory, that's the work that I need to do every single day. I need to keep working on all of those different parts of this business every single day uh, and fill that pipeline. Uh, and, and, um, that is my core everyday job that I'm doing as a, as a business development. Or this, if I'm running a sales team and I have marketing departments and I have pre-sales help and all of this kind of stuff, that's all the work the whole team is doing, that basic funnel uh, work and pipeline work. 
So that's every day you're getting up. What are the other things that you're going to do? Well, number two on the list of the rules of selling or what the heck am I supposed to do today? Um, 7.2 things. So the first one, fill that pipeline. Get that job done. Have you filled the pipeline? Number two, ask high quality questions. I mean, that does come without um, a lot of controversy, but asking well-written questions. Um, Folks that have been doing this for a long time, uh, if I am a senior person, I'm going to have a list of questions already. I have a go-to list of questions. I've been in the same software sales for like 10 years. I still have the same list of questions. I add more to those questions. Uh, So I have all sorts of different types of questions for each different role um, that I'm talking to, all the different, I sell a complicated product, and so there's lots of influencers uh, at a customer that are part of that buying decision committee. So we've got the technical people, we have the business people, we have the service people, we have the accounting department, we have the CEO, we have all these different people and all of them have different needs. And so I have different questions that I want to ask them when the um, when the conversation kind of goes a little um, sideways or things go a little uh, quiet. I always have new things to talk to them about. So that's an exciting thing. So ask high quality questions. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about this because it's actually a big part of this. When you ask good questions, you get really great answers and people lean in and start doing that. And uh, so uh, they start engaging. And so failing to ask high quality questions both not only shows you are a moron because you don't know what you're talking about, you're not relating to their industry, and um, you are not building trust you're asking stupid questions. And so this is why it's not just asking questions is not a thing. You want to ask good questions. What you don't want to do, this is what you don't want to do. Back in the old days, there was a show on TV. And it was... Dragnet. Dragnet. Do you remember Dragnet? I remember. I remember Dragnet. It was an awesome show. It was about it was about uh, Joe Friday and his partner. I forget what his partner was, but uh, it was uh, um, you know a detective, and he would go out and he would interview. He was always just the facts. That's all he wanted. That was his his line. He didn't want to know anything about the the feelings or observations. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. That's how he would say. It. And so he <laughs> he would come into the. He would describe the, you know, uh, we're going on to the scene of, uh, of the, the scene of the crime and they're trying to figure the crime out and they're interviewing all of the, the witnesses of the crime and all of this and they bring out their little notepad and then they would just ask questions. And it was just like just, just nailing people with questions and questions and questions. And then they would come up with a, the conclusion, you know, of what what the the crime was who stole the you know who stole the the cars or you know who murdered the 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 landlady they would figure it out by just asking questions and that was the thing but if you were on the receiving end of that questions you kind of felt like you were getting interrogated a little and uh you know there actually is a lot of studies that are done on questioning 
um, and how questions are done. And, you know, the, the thing that's interesting about questions is it is put you in a position of control because and it's kind of a little like role playing. You become in charge of the conversation. And it's a way that salespeople can often use con- uh, questions for control. And that's that's great. But you don't want to overplay your hand either. And so um, you that's why having a list of questions is really good and understanding the questions uh, that are um, the type of questions that they are. Are they open-ended questions that allow um, your prospect to expound on observations and needs and their feelings and all of this? So you have what we ref- could refer to as feeling-finding questions or open-ended questions that let the customer kind of wander around and a- ask answer how they ever they like. And other ones are just fact-finding questions. What color? What day? You know, that are just closed uh, closed questions. So you have open questions and closed questions. And you need to pace those very well in terms of, of your um, universe of high-quality questions. And once you get, uh, if you're brand new, and you're just kind of hanging out and, le- and sitting in the meetings and stuff like that with seasoned salespeople. This is what you want to listen for. You want to start writing down the questions that they're answering and what uh, uh, what questions would be good follow-up questions and listen to the questions that are being asked. And because intuitively, really good salespeople know this. They, they You don't even have to train them after a while. They know this is this is how it works. This is how you engage. How are the kids? What's the weather? You're using questions to run the whole thing. And um, so... Um, so a good a good salesperson or a good business development person will do this. They will have a universe of questions. The the number two on this list of fourteen or fourteen point six things to do. I always love the list, so I kind of make a little fun of it. Uh, is listen, listen, cut and pick. Will you turn the television off and just listen? Put the paper down, honey, and listen to me. So listening is really important. Uh, I really believe that the salespeople are are the best listeners. They can really be the really best listeners. If you invest your time asking great questions, it's critical to listen to what the other person tells you. So really, the best salespeople or best business development people are the best listeners because that's where you start to engage in relaying something that's really important. This is what's important. What the customer thinks. <laughs> I know this sounds so basic, doesn't it? But how many flipping times have we been in that meeting where the salesperson just asks questions for control? They don't listen to the answers because they've already got it all figured out. And it's just some big charade to help move the con- customer's pros- uh, the, the um, prospect into a customer. And so they're just following a script and they're not actually listening to what the customer or prospect is saying. So um, when you listen to people and I say practice the McDonald drive-in listening model, because you know what that is. You know what you know what that is. You know what the McDonald's listening methodology is? Yeah, this is this is the McDonald listening methodology. Let me explain this to you. This is how this works. So um, you got uh, you got a. What happens is you have this guy. First, when you drive up to McDonald's, um, you have um, some bozo behind you that is. Um, he's out there um, playing. Um, he's he's playing this. He's got this really cool tune, but he's jamming it really hard. And so his, you know, he's it's just back there thumping away. He's got something going on back there. And then you're you're you got your kids in the car with you, and I. Dad, I want a hamburger and three cokes and a 
So you're trying to get the order. You got this guy behind you with the stereo on, and then the car because now there's double lanes. You got the two, so you have another car over there with the, the speakers going on. And now you're trying to ask again, "Hey kids, what do you want? What do you want?" I mean, this is this is what you have to put up with when you're doing a drive-through order at McDonald's. Okay, it's just a cacophony of noise. And you have to calmly relay a complicated order to to your um, to the person taking the order, and so they, uh, which they are sitting in a worse environment than you are because they have the really cruddy headset and they can barely hear you. Plus, not only did the stereo from the guy next, they are hearing your engine uh, noise too that you can't hear because you're inside the car. You're not hitting close enough to the speaker. You're kind of back inside your car. People are yelling. The fries uh, alarms going off. All of this noise. It's wonder anybody gets this right, and like eighty percent of the time, that order is always wrong. If they don't practice the McDonald's drive-through methodology, that I'm going to tell you, the McDonald's drive-through methodology is you literally just repeat what that person said. That's all you have to do. This is a way that you can. Uh, relay, hey, I'm listening to you. Your information is important to me. I want to get this accurate because I don't want anybody returning the order. I don't want you opening the order and say, I wanted no fries. And you get, onion, you know, you get no fries, you get onion rings instead of, I wanted the double with the hamburger and the ketchup and there's no ketchup on it. I mean, this is the stuff that really makes uh, customers mad. So you want to get the order accurate. And so a way to prove again is to practice this methodology which is oh thank you for your order if i have that right it is and they repeat the order don't they they repeat the order and in in the really great places they have it actually up on the screen as they enter it in and so you can see no no you got it wrong it's a medium coke not a, a double coke zero or whatever right so you you're able to kind of get this communication uh, laid out before you actually commit to anything. And so this is the way at the end of your meeting, summarize your understanding of the conversation in your own words, check the accuracy of this summary with the person you're talking to. Uh, yes, it is common courtesy to do this, but it, it, it builds trust with the person because basically what you're telling them is I'm interested in what you have to say. That's us all. And in many ways, a lot of people uh, in the sales game don't, actually care what the customer has to say. They just want to close their sale. They're focused on the outcome and not on the process. And when you're a prospect, you want to be listened to. All right, number whatever. What are we on for? We said uh, first, fill the pipeline. Number two, ask high quality questions. Number three, listen. Number four, focus on your presentation. Okay, so... I sit through presentations every day. Every day I sit through these over and over again, sometimes the exact same presentation uh, as we go through the same presentations over and over again. And I'm just going to tell you, um, it can always get improved. You can always make your presentations better. Um, The first thing that you want to do in any company-provided slide deck. uh, So let's say I work for Acme Widget Company, and uh, I'm going to talk to a prospect about Acme widgets. 
And uh, I'm a, let's say I'm not a big company. I'm a small company. I'm working for a small company. And the owner of the company prepared the dem- the uh, presentation that I'm to give to the customer. Uh, and what what is the most important thing for the for the owner of the company to let the customer know? The deck contains, here's a list of all of the customers that we have. We've been in business for 47 years. My father started this company back in 1842, and it's been uh, in the family business for so many years. We've had a long-term success. We're pillars of the community. Um, our product is second to none. We've been selling it for a long, long period of time. It's really great. Um, at some point we'll actually listen to what you need, but I think it's more important right now that you understand how important we are as a company. And so what they begin uh, the presentation with is all slides about them. And let me tell you, customers don't care about any of that stuff. They do not care when they're getting fa- you're getting FaceTime with a customer. Do not, if I ever see this, if I ever see any one of you in this class pulling that stunt, I am going to call it. I'm going to call you out on it. Don't do that business. That's the worst thing. And this is stuff you go to the wall on. You go to the wall uh, with the owner of the company if this is in it because nobody likes that stuff. Nobody listens to that. You've lost them. You know that part, that part in, uh, in, um, in uh, Jerry Maguire? She, she, you know, he walks into the, I love Jerry Maguire. It's one of the greatest sales movies ever. But this one scene when he walks back into the room uh, and she's there with all of the girls and they're all complaining about how bad marriage and love is all about. And he walks back into that room and he's like giving her the pitch. Like I totally screwed up. You know, I, um, I have for, I've neglected you and uh, we had a really great day today and, um, I, you know, I just need you, Do- uh, Dorothy Boyd, back into my life, and I've screwed up, and I apologize, and you're the most important thing, and you complete me, and he gets all emotional and all of this, and she's like, shut up, you had me at hello, just the fact that you showed up and came back is good enough for me, I know where your heart is, and we all love that scene in that movie. Well, um, this is what your prospect is saying when you show them that crappy um, kind of presentation, what they're saying is, uh, shut up. You lost me at hello. Um, basically, as soon as you opened your mouth up and showed me that slide deck that the marketing department built or had contracted somebody to build in, eight, you know, five years ago, that's got to go. They Customers don't care about this stuff. So focus on the customer's needs in your <laughs> stupid presentation. Get rid of all of that, regardless of what a marketing department thinks. People don't care about your company. There's other ways to relay that information, like in your branding and in your website. Go tell the story there. Have a nice YouTube 10-minute video interviewing, you know, all of the company and why they're so important. But they don't care about, customers don't care about that stuff anymore. That's not important. That's, uh, for goodness sake, they're buying stuff on on eBay and on on Amazon uh, without even knowing the company they're buying it from. They don't care about this stuff. How long you've been in business? Who cares about that? In fact, if you've been in business too long, they think you're old and stodgy and haven't don't have any innovation. So that's why they want to get rid of you. Anyways, so it can work against you. All right, uh, all right. Um, 
So focus on your presentation. So you filled your pipeline. You're engaging with some customers during the day in high quality questions. You're listening. You've got a really slick presentation. You're, you know, you're really focused on creating that in there. And then the third one, uh, or not the third one, the next one on the list is really trust, building trust. If people don't trust you, we've talked a lot about this in the last three podcasts. So I'm not going to belabor this, but, you know, trust is really important. Uh, know that people care about that kind of stuff. Look at it like currency. Either you got it or you don't. And when you do things that are trustworthy, you deposit into the bank more um, positive credit for that customer or so or that prospect. So when you're listening and asking good questions, you're building trust with people. You're building that trust. So that's why it's really essential. Um, Another way to build trust, which is um, item number six, uh, do what you uh, say you will do when you say you will do it. Now, why is that important? Holy cow, we just talked about how important trust is. So if you weren't paying attention back there in the back of the class, were you not paying attention? Hello, this is important. Come on, guys, you're killing me here. All right, so this is what we're saying. What, uh, do you do what you say you're going to do? So like 80% of success, it's been said, is just showing up. It's just doing the basic th- part of showing up. And I will prove this to you that companies are so awful at this. If you are in the, in the business of buying a house, if you're really interested in buying, I mean, I go through this all the time, trying to hire some, go try to hire somebody, for example, go on the website, Go out on Google's or on Facebook and say, hey, I'm looking for someone to help me. I want someone to do my yard this year. And then someone's going to say, hey, call um, Joe, uh, Joe Johnson's uh, excellent uh, lawn care service. And you go to Joe um, Johnson's excellent lawn care services website and you put in, hey, I'm interested in somebody doing my yard. Um, I, uh, and, uh, then count the days that it takes for Joe's, um, awesome lawn care service to get back to you. We, we did this. I did this actual exercise myself. We were interested in building a house several years ago instead of buying a pre-built house. And I didn't buy a house or I didn't build a house because of this one thing. The salespeople killed it for me. We went to the local home show, which is a, you know, 150 local contractors and, and builders and folks that build like the sheds and do your, you know, I started to, I want to, I want to be a, my own contractor and I'm going to build, I'm going to have, I'm going to contract all these companies to build a house for me. I have a good idea of where I want to build it. I have options on land to build it. I think I even have a builder that will help me build it. I uh, And now I just need to start to get budget mon- money for, you know, how much is the pool? How much is this particular roof going to cost me? Give me heating and cooling um, bids and all of this kind of stuff. I want to do that work. I'm going to save myself 50 grand by doing this. Well, uh, so I dropped my name and talked to uh, 100 different companies in the period of a three different visits to that location, to the home show. And uh, guess what? Uh, out of the 100, I got calls back within one week from five of them. Like that rate of follow-up was about a uh, 95% fall-off rate. I didn't get even call backs. Uh, half never returned any information to me at all, ever, ever. 
So like I'm an actually an active buyer looking with money in my pocket, looking at your products and none of them show up. And so this is a thing. This is a thing about doing what you say you do. If you say you're going to follow up, do the follow up. Even the follow up is I don't know the answer right now. Um, again, another opportunity to build trust. Sometimes when you don't know, it's easy to follow through and just say, I don't know yet. Um, we're still, I'm still waiting on so-and-so or, you know, that we're still working through the details or whatever. Give them a status update. Call them every day. Let them know, hey, your stuff is really important. I'm keeping track of it. Um, it's waiting for engineering right now. Um, so you are following through. Um, so that's really important. Seven uh, great ideas for you. Number eight is the best one of all. Number eight is the best one of all. Okay, here we go. The last item in the great list of awesome things, eight rules uh, for selling. And the last one on the list um, really resonates with me. It resonates with me on many levels because first, it's a literary um, reference uh, to one of the greatest f- books in American um, kind of our um, list of uh, American classics. Uh, this one goes back to the 1800s. It's an old book, and it's about a feller call, uh, called Captain Ahab, Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. And uh, let me see if we can pull this together. So on the stack of stuff. Oh, yes. It's Captain Ahab. He's out there waiting for Moby Dick to come up. They're seeing the birds. Seeing the birds. The birds. Oh, here he goes. So here comes Moby Dick, and he's he's um, he's hell bent for leather, man. He is ready to. And uh, Ahab is up for the challenge. So it's now man versus beast, and uh, man has all of his uh, minions behind him helping him out. He pulls the harpoon. He throws it, and he gets it. And other four other harpooners in his kind of crew all get it. They all land their harpoons on the, the white whale named Moby Dick. And, uh, of course, back then, uh, it now becomes a race as they tie their boats to this screaming whale that is giant. They're little skiffs, if you will. And, of course, you know, this is not going to end well, of course, He's yelling, and the music is big, and the special effects are happening. Moby Dick jumps and dives, and there goes one boat, totally tipped over. And he's, let the men go. Just screw the guys that just died. Forget those guys. Closer. You know, more risk. Let's add on more risk to everybody else. It's right there. The whale is right there. It's like, wait, can get this whale. What? Oh. The whale somehow goes a 180 underwater and comes straight with an open mouth at Captain Ahab now. Oh. All the guys bail. Ahab gets stuck on the whale. He's now on the whale. The music continues to rise, and the whale goes underwater. And his some of his guys are drowning in the water. 
the in fact now the the whale is kind of pissed and so he Ahab grabs on to the whale in the last fit of desperation and uh, the whale goes underwater and uh, Ahab is kind of stuck on the whale now he's he's climbing he's climbing the whale bloodied he is he's gonna kill the whale still sing barehandedly he's gonna do it the whale of course just dives underwater uh, drowning said Captain Ahab as he continues to impale the him with uh, the harpoon of course not doing enough damage um, and he stabs him a couple more times Yeah, he's, 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 uh, yes, overacting. This is what, what happened in the, in the, in the late fifties, a lot of overact and the sea is calm and everybody goes back now. And, uh, of course, Ahab and the whale are gone and the men are just like, Hmm, wonder what happened there. <laughs> not too, not too excited about it. They're kind of sullen and sad pulling some. Uh, some people out of the water. Let's go back. Oh, wait. There, the, the whale shows again. He comes out of the water, and Ahab is, of course, dead now, impaled and entangled in in the um, in the actual rigging of the whale, of the uh, of the ropes and whatnot. He's dead, but he beckons. So that's that's the <laughs> that's the that's the line. That's the best one. So this in, encapsulates this encapsulates. He's dead, but he beckons, and uh, so that's that's the whole thing. Why why in the heck can't we just know when to quit? Sometimes um, we um, we encourage people, um, and I'm not. I mean, I love to be motivated and I love to study and listen to different analysts come up with different ideas and, and encourage people to have the grit and determination to follow their dreams and all of this. But that's what Captain Ahab did. And if nothing teaches us uh, that sometimes we can um, pursue things to our demise and the demise of others uh, is that when we, when we don't know when to let go. We look at, sometimes we look at an opportunity and we see the number behind it. Like, oh, this is, could be worth a million dollars. My, you know, Widgets R Us company that's worth the million, gonna, you know, average sales a million bucks. So it's a million dollars. We can't give that up. And uh, yet we're going to ignore every bit of analysis we've ever done on those types of customers and prospects to go, that prospect probably isn't going to buy because we don't usually do well in that market or we have alternate reasons. And believe me, when I tell you, I've learned this lesson personally in very painful ways. And uh, when I try to share this, um, this idea with my uh, sales teams that I work on, this is hard 
for anybody to take to look at an opportunity at maybe an existing customer and go, you know, they, they're thinking of buying an add-on, but we have this big investment that we need to make. Or they, we have an RFP that we're going to respond to. And it's like, we do horrible on RFPs in this market. Or, you know, we have some information that leads us to know that this is not worth pursuing. Um, or we get inside information from the customer that somebody from their team is telling us, you know, um, you don't really have a good chance here because, uh, you know, we're, we're already committed to that other application or that other company's systems. Uh, so, you know, um, you're selling a diesel car. All we have is gas cars here in our fleet. So, you know, yeah, you're going to, you have a unique advantage. Yes. You're lower in maintenance, but nobody here likes diesels. And so, yeah, we're going to go respond to the RFP and we're going to send our engineering team out there and we're going to pursue this thing until the customer says no. And some sales organizations, they just do not know how to say no. And so sometimes you just have to say no. You have to say no to yourself. You don't be Ahab. Don't bring down your ship, kill all your guys, and then beckon other people uh, after you're dead, and this is the this is the problem. It's the greed that that we have. This is at the heart of what the challenge. And uh, not to end on a morality play or anything like that, but that's the challenge often. And um, the love of money is the root of evil, is what the Bible tells me. And so, you know, being so motivated by money and making that be the sole thing as a it it's, can often cloud your judgment in terms of kind of like making that good determination of, is this worth it? Is this worth us investing all this time? So this is one of the sales um, tricks that uh, a lot of good sales uh, teams and people and, and leaders understand is that what you actually want to do is not just fill your pipeline um, and have more dials and all of that, but also part of your job is to qualify those that are in the pipeline or that may come into the pipeline to know when to not pursue them. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the one in four. I got four opportunities that I'm pursuing for my one sale. You know, instead of the customer saying no to me after I've invested a whole bunch of money and time and effort to make, you know, make it past that gate. So I give them the proposal. Maybe I might just better spend my time figuring out which one of those three are not qualified and not, and choosing not to pursue those. So I still close my one, but I just don't waste my time with the three. And does that make sense? Hopefully that makes sense. Qualifying is really helpful and not pursuing um, low probability shots is, you know, really a good idea. And um, don't be Captain Ahab, man. <laughs> don't be Captain Ahab. And if you haven't watched the movie or read the book, you know, it is a, uh, it's a pretty cool book. Um, it is uh, very dense reading. So it's not a it's not for the faint of heart because um, so, it's written in the 1800s. So if English is not your first language, you will uh, begin to develop a, uh, a respect for some of the complexities that uh, um, early America had because uh, we had this, this group had a huge immigrant community. And so you have very uh, distinct um, 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 slang and 
speech patterns that are being relayed in the book. And that's actually one of the coolest parts of the book. The main character in the book, Captain Ahab, was a Quaker. And so he spoke a certain type of English that you would find in the old English um, from England English. Um, the Quakers were primarily British um, immigrants that uh, that uh, came from, that were abolitionists, and they were very religious. And so they spoke the King James, like it's like listening to the King James Bible. And then you had other people that worked on the ships, um, other characters in the movie and in the book um, that were just common um, sailors. So they had their terminology that they used. And then you had, so it's kind of a cool book from that standpoint, but it can be difficult to understand uh, given our modern uh, maybe interpretation of these types of things. We don't get exposed to those kind of language forms, but it is a, it is a great book. A lot of us uh, had to read it in high school it is considered classic American literature, and uh, it's it's one of the great it's one of the greats. But uh, <laughs> it is uh, it is uh, it is a mystery in an enigma, and uh, <laughs> oh, it's just an awesome book. And uh, the movie's great. Gregory Peck, really great movie. It's one of his best uh, movies. It just really resonated. Uh, so well. Um, there was a little bit of a movie that was very similar that came out a couple years ago called In the Heart of the Sea. And that movie actually was very similar uh, about um, about uh, the, um, the supposedly the true story of Moby Dick behind there. Uh, but anyways, very interesting, interesting, um, interesting topic. But I, I end that. I end this segment with that. So that's your that's your eight rules. That's your eight rules right there, friends. Um, I'll recap them again. Uh, here you go. A. Fill in the pipeline. Work on the pipeline. Number one job that you have as a salesperson: ask really high quality questions. Listen. Lord, listen to those people, okay? <laughs> Care about what they're saying. You're going to learn more by listening than by talking. Uh, focus your presentations. Keep sharpening the saw there, baby. Keep working on getting that thing better. Update it. Edit, edit, edit. Get rid of all the stuff that people don't care about in the presentations. Focus on customer needs and value. Trust you're building trust all the time. Show your value. Know your value as a salesperson. Uh, demonstrate that as you know, as an account manager, as a marketing person. What is your value here? Contrary to popular belief, that does not mean talking about at great length about you or telling your prospect um, what you think they need to know about your product. Show value means discussing the aspects of your solution or your your. Um, project that you're trying to get funded that are the most relevant to the customer in terms that they understand. So get rid of your jargon, show your value uh, and uh, do what you say you're going to do. So that helps build trust, know when to let go. So, all right, with that said, let's uh, take a, just a sec just a second, I'm just going to have a little audio break here, and then we're going to go over to the stack of stuff. It's going to be great fun. See you on the other side.
All right, we're back. We're back. It is the hustle is the hack. Stack of stuff, baby. Let's talk about the stack. Stacks and stacks. <laughs> Are you ready for this? I got some great stuff this week. And, uh, well, let's just talk about it. All right, enough Pac-Man. There you go, Pac-Man. Stop it. Cal, I hate that guy. You know how many quarters I wasted on Pac-Man? I mean, I can't even, I can't even, I just can't even get into it. It's so frustratingly painful. <laughs> Anyways. All right, so uh, a couple of things, stack of stuff this week. Uh, we had talked about uh, last time we, uh, last time we met, uh, we ended on, um, a uh, couple things about uh, the uh, service organizations and whatnot. So uh, I'm a promise. I think it was our last one. So I've got added more to the stack. Uh, we talked about EV and stuff like that. I put a little more things in the stack. Um, but the first thing is uh, number one on the stack is the seven most in demand IOT uh, jobs that are going to be out there. And uh, so uh, this is trying to explain IoT to what my who who's listening to this podcast right now because I know my audience, I know who my audience is right now, and uh, I do. Although I do have a lot of uh, men salespeople and uh, different people, I also know that there is a bunch of people that have n- are not technologists. So I am going to try to relay to you what IoT <laughs> means. So this is kind of a tall order because. You know, not a lot of people are technologists that listen to this uh, podcast, and yet I'm going to talk about some technology here. But this is important technology here. So please, please don't, don't go, Pierre, don't go, uh, you know, (laughs) Pierre, you're talking about uh, bad stuff and IoT. Don't turn me off right now. Don't do it. I promise this will be helpful. And so what is IOT? So this is an acronym that is like played all over. People say this all the time, IOT. What are we talking about? What is an IOT? I want four of them. How many do I have? What is an IOT? And uh, so IOT is an acronym standing for Internet of Things. Internet of Things. That's what IOT stands for. That's your quiz today. What is the quiz? So did you get it? IOT, Internet of Things. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. So IOT means Internet of Things. And so what does that mean? What is the Internet of Things? So the Internet of Things is in your home right now. You probably have, do you have a, does anybody in in the audience back there, Bueller, do you have, hey, Bueller. Do you have a, do you have a, a Cortana in your house? No, you don't. Do you have a? <laughs> uh, uh, how about this? Do you do you have a Nest um, doorbell? Does anybody have a video doorbell? Okay, that is an IoT device. It is a thing. It is a device, and it's connected to the internet. And that device, whether it's a refrigerator, a video doorbell, a um, a truck. Um, the tank in your, um, you know, uh, in, uh, in your water tank, in your, uh, in your pool that does your chemicals to the sous vide or your barbecue has a connection to the internet. Those are things in your home that have it, but internet of things is way bigger 
in industry. So if I go into industry and I look at a factory, I walk into a factory, what are the internet things that are connected in here? Well, all the heating and cooling infrastructure inside this building is connected. It's all connected to, and there's somebody that can look at a dashboard, a report, and that report can tell us, you know, where the heat is too hot in the building and where it's too low in the building. And then I can use computers to adjust it so that I turn on certain parts of the building and turn down other parts of the building. The systems can pay attention to all of the temperature sensors in the building to go, hey, on Fridays at X amount, of, let's say at three o'clock, um, the temperature goes way down. Well, why is that? Well, because people leave the building and we close the place at three o'clock. The thermo- the thermostats don't know that. Uh, we're still heating the building when everybody's gone. So what if we automated the, you know, the heating in the building to turn the temperature down to just over the weekend, right? We would save money. So that's one way of thinking about the Internet of Things. And it gets way more sophisticated than that when you apply very complex computer structures to this and computer systems that interpret all of that data and then start to go, oh, there's sensors inside of the heating and cooling systems that show me how much this motor works when I get this amount of heat out of the system. And I can see that it's starting to work harder than it did last month to produce the same amount of heat That means something is broken or is breaking in that product, or there's maybe a filter between the heating system and the output of the heating system that is clogged up. I better get somebody out there before something bad happens. And so that's the basic idea of these types of things. Internet and integrated internet, internet of things, there is going to be and is currently an explosion of job opportunities in this space because it saves money. It makes environments safer. It reduces carbon emissions of ele- and usage of electricity. It lowers the cost of operating things. It helps companies that build and engineer those kind of complex systems to understand how things are actually used in the environments that they're built for and uh, and how long it takes to repair them and what the repair was done when this particular alarm went off. And so when you can you know, engineer systems that pull all that information together, you get some pretty amazing results. Customers are happier, costs are lower, things become less expensive to own and maintain, and you know, there's a lot of, of return on investment. So you will hear me talking about this. This is one of those mega trends that's happening. IoT systems now are are just on fire. It is a you know multi multi billion dollar industry, and manufacturers are building this stuff right into the thing. And I have one of the most ridiculous IoT devices ever invented. Uh, I'm, uh, my employer sent it to me around Christmas time, and it is a um, a uh, Bluetooth uh, coffee mug. The coffee mug literally has a Bluetooth device in it. And I, on my phone, can control the temperature of the mug. It has a heater in there and all this kind of stuff inside of it. And uh, it is a really ridiculous piece of equipment because it actually it loses its uh, Bluetooth connection all the time and you have to reinstall it. It's just a horribly written application. As an application guy, you know, you're going to pay attention to this stuff and you just go, this is a $100 flipping coffee mug. Who would ever buy this? It is kind of a ridiculous 
ridiculous piece of equipment. But uh, so it does, it's a constant reminder to me of how over-engineering could happen when technologists are trying to solve problems that don't exist. Uh, This is one of them. Like, uh, just why couldn't you just have a sensor inside of there that just kept it at 140 degrees? I don't need an app for this. I just need a thermostat and a heater. That's it. It's pretty simple. I don't need an app. To, to, to share and I don't need to you know tweet out copies and photos of my my warm coffee anyways it's just ridiculous so anyways um, in the stack of stuff is the seven get on with it Pierre the seven most demanded IOT um, services um, there's seven um, things right now that um, you know if you're looking for jobs and you're going to find this is one of Pierre's strategies here is you don't solve today's problems. What you want to do is you want to kind of look out a little in the future and go, there's a big problem that's going to happen um, because, and, and you're trying to infer that issues are going to become big, fat, hairy deals in a little bit, like the next two to five years. And I want to position my solution or my product or service or myself to be ready for when that occurs. And so today I'm doing X, but I see Z is coming down the road and I want to start moving towards Y and Z. So right now there has been so much work. We all know this happens, right? Because we're always on the phone calling up the phone. We're calling up, you know, somebody, hey, can you come out here and send a person? You're, we're getting on the phone and hit hit four. It says, you know, hit hit two for Spanish. And then you're kind of going through the dialing menu to get to somebody to come fix some piece of equipment that already has a sensor in it right now. So why am I calling? Why isn't that device calling in and saying, I need to be fixed? That's where we're going. That's where we're going. So right now, all this investment in customer um, kind of phone systems and call centers and stuff like that, that is not a growth business, people. <laughs> it's not a growth industry. The growth industry is going to be to have the cotton picking machine call the um, dispatch system to send somebody out. Zero touch dispatching will happen. Like I'm going to have, so we're not going to have somebody like, um, this is why we love kiosks. We don't want to talk to somebody anymore. We want to walk into McDonald's or we want to open up the McDonald's or Starbucks app. We want to put our order in exactly how we want it. We don't have to worry about translating this to some other person to type it into a computer so somebody else can go make it for us. We just want the order that we want the order of, and we don't want to talk to anybody about this. And so this is where this is going. The IoT devices are just going to call in to the systems and say, I'm going to break, please fix me. So this is where IoT is going. So what does that mean? I need, there's a bunch of jobs that are going to have to get, that are going to have to come in order for this to take place. That's right. We're going to have to have jobs that happen. So the first one is I got to have jobs. Number one, I need some talent people to go out and find them. I need recruiters and one that that have a good network of people that are engineering people that are IOT people that know about these systems. And so I need to build the network around this. The next one is I need um, people. I don't need engineers necessarily to go and build this stuff. Because this stuff is going to come right from the manufacturer already built. So what I need are people that can come up with the design of how to deploy those things. I need to have, um, so I need solution designers. I need people that can take um, 
problems that exist and solve them using kind of solution design and design thinking methodologies. And what that is, is kind of going on a piece of paper and building out that kind of system in in theory, so to speak, or designing it in before we actually install all of it. And then we want to start looking at the optimization of the processes that those IoT systems support. So it is like if you went to, if anybody studied Lego Leagues, uh, Lego Leagues and went and built a robot, that's what you're talking about, the optimization of the process. The, I need to pick up a Lego block. And so there's a process that has that sensor sees Lego, um, 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 extend arm, move uh, the wheels right and left, you know, do all these things. That's the process. So you need people that can kind of think through that process. I don't need to be a big time C-sharp programmer to do that, that systems have tools to build this kind of stuff. So it's not the programming component that's important. It's the how to visualize and design and be creative about the optimization of the processes that are being supported. And the other part, of course, you know, you're going to integrate all of this stuff. But the other two to think about is what is the uh, commercialization and the business analytics that go around that? Because what's going to happen is that all of these companies right now that build their widgets, that build their stuff with the devices in it, what they want to do is that's a new product. That's a new way of doing business. So instead of selling you, let's say, let's imagine, let's imagine we're going to build a company and we're going to create a company that makes uh, shrink wrap machines. So if you've ever worked in a warehouse, uh, what you do is you stack your boxes and you put them on your pallets. And then what do you do? How do you keep those boxes from falling off the pallets when you stick that pallet in the truck? You shrink wrap the the entire pallet. And so there's machines. You stick the the pallet on this little turntable. It spins around. You get off your high-low. You, you know, kind of tie the, the shrink wrap onto you. push the magic button, and it spins around, and it puts the stuff, uh, puts the shrink wrap on the thing, and then you just uh, take it and you load it on the truck. None of the boxes are going to fall off. Everything is sealed. You're good to go. That's what a shrink wrap machine does. And so traditionally how you would sell your, if I'm the shrink wrap machine manufacturer, what I'm going to do is I am going to, I am going to build the best darn shrink wrap machine ever made. And then I'm going to sell it to you. And you're going to, you're going to, you're going to give me $20,000 for that. And we're going to send our guy out. We're going to put it on the truck and we're going to install it. And we may charge you a thousand bucks for installation. And then anytime, you know, you need shrink wrap, what you're going to do is, you know, you can, there's a hundred shrink wrap companies, you know, you can go on Amazon and buy shrink wrap. You can buy it from us, but we are there just to, because you, thank you for buying this great product. We're going to give you a, a one-year warranty. And, uh, you know, anytime after that, you just give us a call and we'll, we'll send somebody out to fix it after that. And we'll just charge you regular time and material for that. Now that is the way products were sold before the IOT model. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to engineer a completely different business model. What we're going to do is instead of selling you a shrink wrap machine, what we're going to do is we are going to sell you how many we're going to we're going to buy. We're going to make a a freaking awesome shrink wrap machine and you are going to subscribe to the shrink wrap machine. And what you're going to do is you're just going to pay us for every foot of shrink wrap that you use. We're going to provide you with a shrink wrap. 
We are going to provide you. We're going to come out and bring this thing to you. We're going to charge you maybe $2,000 to install it because that's what it really costs to ship and install this thing out there. We're going to send in, and uh, while we're out there, we're going to put you, we're going to put 10 cases of shrink wrap. And then every, uh, we, we have a device sensor inside of that thing that helps keep track of, we're owning, it's my piece of equipment. So you're effectively leasing this uh, equipment for me. And the way that you're paying for it is by how much shrink wrap you use. So I now start to learn how to fix that machine. And um, I, as a customer, uh, am going to love this relationship because I don't have to lay out 50 grand for the coolest thing. I only have to pay 10 grand to install this thing. And um, if I use it a lot, I pay more. But if I don't use it very much, I don't pay very much. And so um, customers love it. Uh, my company that engineers and builds these systems loves it because they get all the information on how to make it better because they know, well, for every, you know, 47,000 revolutions, we need to have an oil bearing replaced or we need to have a fitting replaced. In the past, we never actually fixed this thing. We just sent it to the customer. They repaired the thing themselves. They took care of it themselves. And they only called us up if something big happened. We didn't really understand the maintenance life cycle of it or how often it had to be lubricated. We had some standards, but we don't really know in their environment how it did. And now I can engineer a better product uh, the next time goes around. So this is where this whole thing is going. So um, being able to take that business model and do it like the MBA case studies of of coming up with a, a commercialization product uh, changing the way that we used to do business to a new way of doing business. Anyway, so I'm just telling you, dude, look into IoT systems and look at your great manufacturers. And those are the types of jobs uh, that you're going to see come up. So, all right. So stack of stuff, uh, you know, I say I'm going to do three stack of stuff things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to go over here because um, I have another one that is, um, it's, it's a good one. It's a really, really good one. I, um, uh, my boss internally uh, at my company a couple of weeks ago um, posted a picture of herself um, um, talking about, uh, about uh, going to a conference. And uh, the conference that she went to uh, um, had a singer in there. And that singer, I can only play a few minutes. Everybody remember this guy? Anybody? Do you remember? Yes, it's Daughtry. Uh, Daughtry, everybody should remember that guy, Daughtry. Now, here's so like, like, why are we talking about Daughtry? Like, what is up with that? What is up with that, Pierre? Well, I don't know if you remember Daughtry. If you do, he was on like the fourth or fifth season of American Idol. American Idol, of course, is just a really super popular show that uh, brought singers, really, really great, awesome singers, onto the show. And then they um, uh, put them up in front of the audience. Uh, and, uh, you know, the judges kind of judged them and coached them up and stuff like that and got it down to a list of about 10 people. And then from there, they everybody was even, Stephen, uh, even like everybody had the same score. Basically, everybody was at zero. And then they started singing and they would advertise um to the audience, please call in to vote for, you know, your favorite. And it was basically a popularity contest who was uh, good. Well, 
What's your point, Pierre? Come on, get on with it. So what, what about, what's the whole big thing about Daughtry? Well, guess what? Daughtry um, was number four. He finished number four in that, that whole thing. He did not win. And uh, so he uh, he lost, and there on the stack of stuff is the shocking moment where everybody is like, "What?" Even the people that that beat him were totally like blown away, like, "I can't believe it," because he was really really good. And um, so he he loses. And uh, so this isn't the thing about losing. The, what the thing is about how bad the picking was, because the audience got it wrong. Just, Sorry to say this, but the audience got it wrong because what happened the next the, the next year? So he goes off of Idol, he signs a record deal. He was so he had so much support when that record was released in 2007. It was the fastest selling uh, to one million records ever. Period of all rock albums ever done. He was the number one selling rock artist that year. He sold over 9 million records. And he was, you know, Grammy nominated. Just, you couldn't have expected more success in the market for his music. And yet, he was number four on American Idol. My point is this, that sometimes, as we were saying before, (laughs) sometimes the customer is wrong. The customer doesn't know what they want. The market, which is actually what, American Idol end up being a reflection of this broad market. But for the show, in that narrow focus, they picked the wrong artist. He should have won. He was the most popular artist of the year. He was the best-selling record artist of the year. And yet, he couldn't win American Idol. I think that's important to know. Sometimes you lose, even though you're the best and most qualified and so that's why going back to asking good questions is important. That's why um, getting out of deals is important because sometimes you might be exactly the right fit, but the customer is not in the right buying um, or your um, your product or your company has other, it doesn't fit with their model or their business strategy long-term. And, uh, you know, so you want to avoid be, being Chris Daughtry. Um, you know, you don't you wanna you don't wanna be in that position of getting kicked off even though you're the best guy in the field. So, anyways, that's number two. Stack is to have number two. All right. Okay, we have one more. I have a couple ones to um hmm, which one? Uh da, 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 da. what other what other one could be good? What would be good? Um Well, we talked about AOL. Did we talk about AOL? I don't think we did. We didn't talk about AOL. So this happened, uh, this, was, uh, this was last week. Uh, AOL sold, got sold. Verizon is the last keeper of the AOL and Yahoo. And AOL and Yahoo uh, were just sold to a, um, basically a, a capital management company. Um, <laughs> and guess what? They, uh, they sold them for, uh, for $5 billion dollars. And uh, I got I got to tell you, five billion dollars. You know, that's a lot of money. It's, uh, you know, anytime you get into the billions, it's uh, that's a lot of cash there. Now, that's the entire value of the company is a uh, five billion dollars. And uh, let's just kind of put that into some perspective here, right? Let's put that into perspective. Five billion dollars is a lot of money, but if that is usually when you buy a company, you the general rule is. 25 times their earnings. 
So that, in fact, would be $200 million a year. Now, um, AOL uh, uh, was purchased by Yahoo, AOL and um and and Yahoo were purchased by Verizon for um, nine billion dollars, and uh, so for nine billion dollars, they ended up selling the company for five billion dollars. Um, at its height, um, um, Yahoo's market capitalization uh, was over two hundred billion dollars, and uh, uh, AOL's market cap was one hundred twenty-five billion dollars. So these companies at one point in time collectively were worth $325 billion. And uh, today um, they are um, they are worth uh, a lot less than that. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember. I do. I certainly remember when I was a, a youngster, youngster back in the day, a crazy youngster, um, uh, my mom and dad lived at, I bought my mom and dad's house and we lived in their home. My dad was, uh, he had some illnesses. Uh, my dad had Parkinson's disease. And so we, we moved in with my parents to kind of help them run the house, uh, while he was uh, at home. And, uh, so, uh, during that time that was in the mid nineties, uh, AOL was kind of, you know, in its, uh, in its golden years, this is when it was really good. They would send you C CDs, AOL, <laughs> they would send you a CD on getting on because this, they were like, um, the combination of your internet service provider that provides you internet access, your email client and, uh, Amazon and, um, YouTube and Google all in one. They, they provided that as a complete service, basically email and all of this. This is why they got so big so quickly, uh, cause it was like an on-ramp, uh, service. And you just put the CD in your computer back when CDs were a big thing. And you basically just followed the bouncing ball and you connected your phone up to your computer through a modem and it, it got you online and you, um, you got your email and you were good to go. They were worth all of that money. Why is this important? Why is this important today? The the the, the important thing to think again, because this is what is in the mind of Pierre. What is in that mind? What is what are we thinking, Pierre? Hmm, I know this is good. People are applauding me uh, because of this insight and observation. They were they were it. They were the thing. They were the it company of the day. They um, reigned in sunshine and. They were masters of the universe, and today they are not that. They don't reign in sunshine. They are not the masters of the universe. They are yesterday's trash, and the only thing that they're turning in tire in revenue is $200 million in advertising revenue every year, and all of that is legacy stuff. Nothing new, no innovation is happening. Those companies are now just being run um, in order to retain revenue. And that's all that's being bought today. So uh, now, why is that important? Well, <laughs> on the opposite side of what's being said today about the tech oligarchs and big tech and all of the political stuff that goes on today is this belief that companies that are at the top of their game today, let's say Facebook at L and YouTube and Google, are the masters of the universe today. And this will always be such. And this, my friends, is why they know this. They know that their days are numbered just like everybody else. To quote Andy Grove, the founder of Intel and CEO, 
one of the swaggiest fellas in town. <laughs> he was the first one to um, have a cubicle in as a CEO, you know, in with the normal people. And uh, he was a man, he was pretty, pretty amazing uh, fella. And anyways, uh, he was uh, trademark for him was the, he was kind of big in the seventies. And so you can think about how he was so hot with the ladies. He, he wore the, he wore the, you know, the, the man's shirt, you know, like four, four buttons down and he would have uh, the gold medallions and stuff like that in the hairy chest. And he was just very iconic 70s looking dude. And uh, he was just so cool. Anyways, what his he made, he made a term and it sticks with me that only the paranoid survive. And that was his business model that only the paranoid survive because he knew he knew what what uh, he knew that uh, the product when you're in technology, you're 18 months away from because that's how much it takes to build a new product about two years and bring it to market. So um, your business is about 18 months away from getting disrupted by somebody else. And so, uh, so you know, you're always paranoid about um, making sure that you're the most innovative and you're hiring the smartest people moving forward and you're keeping that innovation and you want to be at the edge of it. What will kill the edge in tech is if the federal government steps in to regulate it. Because as soon as the federal government then it makes it an institution. As soon as they come in and say, "Ah, uh, YouTube, you are a you are a regulated utility." Well, guess what's going to happen then? They're just going to become the FCC's uh, version of regular TV stations. All the innovation goes away. They have basically um, cemented themselves into our lifestyles, just like the local television station that you have, and they're going to fall right within that. And, and so I just want to be a reminder when it comes to technology and sales, whoever is in charge today and in the lead today, 10 years later, probably won't be that same way. They will all change. These guys were masters of the universe. They are now the, the on the, the waste bin of technology. And, uh, YouTube and Facebook and stuff like that. I mean, anybody still have a MySpace? No, nobody still has a MySpace page. Most of you are going, I don't even know who MySpace is. How about Vine? You know, Tic Tac will be in the same bin as Vine is 10 years from now. So these things are going to be cyclical. And I just don't believe anymore that that, that the tech, tech oligarchs are really that. I really that. I don't believe that's... And what's going to make them stronger is if the government steps in and makes them stronger. Anyways, that's my stack of stuff for today. Um, anyways, I think we should get to the close of the show because I think I've gone. I've got. I'm good. I think we're good. I think we're good. Don't you? Don't you think? I think this was a. I think this was a great show. I think this was lovely. Yes. All right. Stack of stuff. Just gave you eight rules here. I mean, this is value. You are getting actual value. Starting your business, starting in sales. Hope you're doing great. I'm going to continue to say it. You are a possibility. I totally believe it. Check us out. Website, hustleisthehack.com. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. I don't care who hits it. But I hope you're doing well. 
And uh, I want you just to have a, a blessed week. Talk to you later. 